Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I have officially staged a mutiny. I have kicked Dalton out of the captain's chair. I am now the Jean-Luc Picard. He is the Commander Riker. I am in the number one seat and get to welcome you back to a wonderful another edition, again, of the Cracked Interviews podcast. Joining us on today's podcast, making his return to the podcast booth, we do have my wonderful co-host, Emphasis on the Co., and founder of Cracked Rackets, Dalton Thieneman. Dalton, welcome back to the Cracked Interviews podcast. I uh, don't even know what to say, so we'll just keep moving. That was unbelievable. I'm speechless. <laughs> you, you didn't like the uh, Star Trek reference? It's not the first time I've done it. I was hoping you've watched The Next Generation by now, or at least Star Trek Voyager. Some, some sort of offshoot, but I guess I'll work on that for the next couple of pods. But joining us as well, on the line already, probably regretting he made the decision to come on the podcast... It is, you know, a, no- a notable uh, tennis Twitter personality, obviously a very well-accomplished coach, both on the WTA Tour with Shelby Rogers. He's a former worked with the USDA Player Development, uh, works with First Break Tennis Academy in California, all of these different things. I'm sure you've heard of him. It is Coach Mark Lucero. Coach, welcome to the Cracked Interviews podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. I've, I've never been called a notable Twitter personality. Uh, that, that, makes me, <laughs> that makes me feel good that uh, my presence is uh, acknowledged in the social media community. Thanks, guys. Uh, it might be recency bias. I've been spending a lot of time on researching there, you know, getting ready for this podcast. So I'm, you know, trapped in the Coach Lucero echo chamber. I, all of your thoughts are now mine. So maybe it's just it's, it's notable to me. Uh, but yeah, you know, uh, uh, he may not know the Star Trek references. You're more than welcome to take over the commandership. I'm looking for a true Spock to my Captain Kirk. So, so you know, know, if you, you want to help us, steer you, the you ship might have here. to get uh, you might have to get John Michael Gamble. I know he's a big guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that's good to know. It's a strong place to start the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, well, Coach, you know, part of the reason we wanted to have you on today, obviously at the point we're at in the year, all of the Grand Slams have come and gone. It's been a big enough sample size in the 2018 season that we can do a little bit of reflection, you know, talk about the biggest storylines and just the things going on on tour. But before we do that, I do want to introduce you to our fans, for those who don't know you yourself, played at Boston College, coached the Princeton women's team from, I think, 2004 to 2007, maybe that fall of 2008. I have a fun gimmick for us to begin with. I did a little bit of research, wanted to look up your record, and so we're going to play a common gimmick we do on our other podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, called Alex's Trivia. So if you could, Westoff, cue the trivia sound effect, please. But okay, Coach, we are going to start. I was looking up your record. I believe your first season was 1998-1999. Is that correct? Oh, my gosh. As a player uh, yeah. at Boston College, yes. 
So just so you know, I was a ripe age of three going on four. I believe I was toilet trained. I actually think I knew my presidents and capitals then, or at least my mom liked to butter me up to her friends and say that I did. Uh, but with that in mind, the stage is set. I'm going to take our fans back to the U.S. Military Invitational, where a freshman, Mark Lucero, you know, showing off for the Boston College team, plays what player from what school, and if possible, do you also remember the score of your very first college tennis match? Oh my gosh, my first match? Uh, did I play a guy from Army? Uh, you were playing the U.S. Military Invitational, so we'll count that. You played, I believe, Army in your second match. Okay, I knew I played a guy from Army in one of the first couple of The first match, I don't know, I must have played some guy who maybe wasn't very good, and I beat him, <laughs> and then I lost to guy from Army. Is that right? That, that, that order is right. You beat Barnett from Binghamton. You beat him 1-0, so yeah, he must not have been very good. And then you lost to Shump of Army, 6-1-6-7, or 6-1-7-6, sorry. And what I imagine was a battle, but still, uh, I'm impressed. You knew the schools. That's better than most. I, I mean, obviously, the, that match stuck out to me more than the one that I won. <laughs> and that's, that, that's indicative of your mindset. I like to hear. But just going back to that time, you know, making the decision to play college tennis at BC, uh, as you're coaching now, is that a decision or, you know, just that whole process? Is that something you lean on when giving advice to your young players? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always um, it's really important to try to put yourself in the shoes of whatever athlete that you're coaching or, you know, or just in general, I think whenever we, you know, we're in any role where we're providing guidance or advice, like if you can put yourself in the shoes of, of whoever you're speaking with and trying to see it through their eyes, you know, I think that you can give much, you know, you can be much more empathetic and give much better advice. And, and you know, for me, when I do my job, I, can, I think I can do a better job connecting with the person. If I'm able to, you know, if I'm able to see the game through their eyes or if I'm able to like, see whatever it is they're trying to wrap their head around um, through the lens through which they view it. Uh, it. It makes it much easier for me to, to, to connect and then to give some advice that's hopefully, you know, that's hopefully good advice. Um, but if, if, I, if I'm always seeing it how I see it, you know, that's not helping anybody. You know, I need to try to see it through their eyes. And so, yeah, so knowing what it's like to, you know, to be in college and, you know, to try to focus on your tennis and then trying to focus on school and, and, you know, being social or whatever, or, you know, on the other hand, like, you know, as a, as a player later on, um, but just trying to, you know, trying to not get too far removed from those experiences. And obviously something like this kind of brings it back uh, much easier because as coaches, we can sort of get very comfortable seeing things from the sideline versus, you know, putting ourselves in the shoes of the player and, and remembering like, you know, yeah, I used to miss shots and I wasn't trying to miss them. You know, <laughs> some, some coaches are like, man, how do you miss that shot? You're like, well, pretty easily because I used to miss that all the time. You know, I wasn't actually seeking out, you know, seeking hitting a ball, you know, two inches wide of the sideline. I was trying to hit it, you know, here, but it went there or whatever it is. Um, but one thing I'll say about Army is that that might be the most beautiful campus I've ever been to, um, to see the U.S. <laughs> Military Academy in the fall, like on the banks of, you know, of the Hudson River is just it's spectacular. Oh, absolutely. I, I do want to rewind a second. I know you said you craft your advice uh, for players now on the recruiting trail, you know, dependent on that person, the personality, where they're at with their game, et cetera. But are there any, um, you know, foundational principles or qualities that you recommend in a coach in a program when uh, coaching a player on their recruiting process? You know, obviously the fit, just the personality, like, is there a click? Um, 
is there you know is there a natural click or is there something uh in the coach's coaching style that you connect with are they similar to the coach maybe that you grew up with or if you're not you know if if you felt yourself wanting more in in your background as a player does that coach provide it like do you need to be pushed more does this coach push his players is it more of a player's coach who you know who sort of puts the onus on the players to be self-motivated or is it the coach who really you know who drives the ship hard um i, I think again it's, it's understanding the personality of the player and then trying to find that trying to find a fit from there and understanding too like the coach is going to play a huge role in a lot of parts of your life in college and, and as much as you want to make like you know my coach when i was a, a junior he tried to tell me like mark you know, this tennis thing, like, man, this is your experience and you've got to try really hard not to let other people sort of dictate how your experience is going to go, which I thought was great advice because it really helped me through sort of a dark time in my sophomore year when I was really struggling with injuries and some other things. Um, it really sort of helped me find the fun in it uh, again. But this was also after I was, you know, sort of explained to him just how a lot of things, you know, were going. Um, and that being said, you, how the player and the coach sort of interact and relate to each other you know, it's going to go, it's going to go a long way to determining, you know, your spot in the lineup. Like, are you enjoying practice? Are you enjoying matches? Are you enjoying road trips? And and that stuff too, if you're having a bad experience on a tennis court, it carries into, you know, your social life at school, your academic life at school. And it really is a huge, obviously, you know, tennis, the sports side is such a huge part of your, you know, of your experience in college in general as a student athlete. Um, so if that part doesn't, doesn't quite fit, uh, you know, it's, it's really going to, you know, it's really going to color your experience. So it's important to find that fit, you know, either as a senior in high school, or if you're deciding to transfer, um, you know, you're going to make sure that you find a place that you want to really fit in and a place that you're going to enjoy being at and people you're going to enjoy being around coaches and players. Well, in terms of the college atmosphere and just enjoying your general experience, you know, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to transition from playing at BC to going to coach uh, as an assistant at Princeton in 2004, would you say your own love of the game was fostered through your college tennis experience? Or did you know before then that you wanted to pursue tennis, you know, if not as a professional player, then professionally as your career? Uh, I, I didn't actually, I wanted, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but tennis wasn't something where I saw myself, you know, like long-term. Um, I actually, I was in law school before I ended up in Princeton. Um, and I found myself like sort of missing tennis and I was still sort of doing some tennis stuff on the side. I was like playing some money tournaments in San Diego when I was in school um, and then I took some kids on a trip to Europe, um, working for this group called Tennis Europe. Um, I was just sort of, you know, a law school, I wasn't crazy about it. And I was kind of thinking about making a change. And I just took this summer job, like, uh, to just sort of clear my head. And, um, I found I, I really enjoyed what I was doing. And then when I got back to the States, uh, it's it sort of when I saw the Princeton job open up and I, I actually just emailed the, uh, the human resources ad, I emailed in response to it just to sort of, again, buy myself some time with my parents. Uh, my parents were like, okay, you, you can, you know, you can stop going to law school, but you better have a plan. And so I was like, geez, what's the easiest thing for me to do to buy some time before I really make a plan? And, and it was coaching. Um, and then once I got to Princeton, um, you know, I ended up taking the job. And once I got to Princeton, I, again, really found myself enjoying what I was doing. And I think back to my days in Princeton and I'm, I just I'm like, man, I was so in over my head, like coaching. I, you know, I'd never been trained as a coach. I'd never, 
you know, I had never coached before really other than, you know, like some summer stuff, but, uh, I found myself really enjoying what I was doing. And then I think there's, you know, certain maybe personality traits that, that I have that, um, maybe, you know, sort of help. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's kind of when I really got into, you know, loving that part of it. Um, when I was at BC, uh, we were in an environment where it was very much on you to do what you wanted to do. Like, you know, we had our practices and stuff, but anything outside of practice was pretty much on you. We had, we actually, my, my last few years, we had an assistant coach who was great, Brian Patterson. He played at Notre Dame. He was a very good player. Um, and he was going to BC Law School at the time. And so, but he would, he would come out and hit with us whenever. And we'd, you know, battle play sets, whatever. And, and that, for me, really sort of, um, you know, he was a great role model in that sense because he worked with, you know, he worked with ass off. Um, and so for us to compete with him, like, you know, it raised our level and it sort of, you know, took me to this place where, okay, if you want to be a player, this is really what it takes. You know, like you have to work at this level of intensity or, or, or whatever it is. And, you know, when I, I guess that sort of being in this sort of self-directed um, situation, I think that sort of enabled my like love for the game to start, sort of start really start growing. And, and I, it was kind of like my thing. And, you know, I'd go out and do the ball machine or I'd go do the extras with, you know, with Brian or other guys in the team. Um, and, you know, it just, I think it just sort of, you know, grew very like organically um, where, you know, like my, like I said, my love for the game or sort of where, um, you know, where in my life, I guess the game sort of fit in and how important it was sort of becoming. Um, but maybe I didn't recognize that because like I said, I ended up going to law school. I, I played for about a year after I graduated and I went to law school. And maybe I hadn't realized sort of the role in my life that tennis was starting to sort of take. Um, and then, yeah, like a year into law school, I made a change and um, I was at Princeton for three years. And then after, again, that's funny, after three years at Princeton, I thought I had enough of tennis, you know, so I moved back to San Diego. <laughs> I was, you know, part of me wanted to maybe like try to work at the pro level. Part of me wanted to, you know, maybe go back to school and but do something else. I was thinking about doing this program at San Diego State that was like a, a sports sort of grad program um you know where they sort of you do like sort of an mba type curriculum and they try to put people in front offices of different teams or leagues or whatever um again i took a job over the summer working with the family their daughter had recently won like the girls 16 hard courts and she was pretty good and she was getting ready for college and they were looking for somebody to you know to help get her ready for school and i had recruited her really hard at princeton because i you know i thought she was good and they sort of remembered that they were from you know laguna beach and when I was back in San Diego, they reached out to me and, you know, do you want to work with us? And I said, absolutely. And I spent the summer working with them and, you know, and, and I was hooked. And then at that point I was all in. Um, and yeah, I never looked back. Well, the first thing I'll say off of that is who doesn't have the thought of, you know, I'm just going to go to law school for a little bit, see what happens. I feel like everyone goes that maybe I'm a little young and that's what I'm thinking. I know Dalton had that thought and for some reason they let him graduate, but I suppose <laughs> I that's a time. Hey, coach, I uh, just graduated from law school and you made the right decision not going through Congratulations. that. Congratulations. <laughs> I, I, I left law school and my brother got in the next year, so we did a trade. We did a Lucero trade. <laughs> little <laughs> alternate there, a little alternation there. Yeah. Sub that kind of thing. But wait, so Gruskin, uh, sorry to interrupt you there, but if you have another point, go for it. Well, I have one stupid question, and I will fully acknowledge it's stupid, but I'm going to go with it anyway. So, Coach, you've now had the opportunity to work with players like Ryan Harrison, Sam Query, Shelby Rogers, Jeannie Bouchard, players who are, with all due respect, way better than your average, you know, Binghamton player, Army player. So I'm just curious, do you think you've gotten better since your last year of college if your current self plays, you know, sophomore year you, fresh off of the Army Invitational, who wins that match? 
Oh, I, uh, I think the mark of 2018, hands down. You think I so? Think I, just, I, I think I understand the game much more now, and I think I would know how to play that player, yeah. This is what I'm saying. I completely agree. This is not comparable, but I, I've started, I played club tennis in college at Michigan, and you just play with kids who are just better, who still want to play tennis and are playing, and, you know, they're not playing varsity, but they're doing whatever, and just playing with better people all the time, you get better. And the way I'm going to transition that into a question is, you know, being a developmental coach, um, you, you talked about it in your podcast with Lisa. So again, go check that out at Parenting Aces. Shameless plug there. Uh, but you talk about, you know, re- making sure your athletes have the drive, making sure that they're able to self-motivate themselves to, you know, come out there no matter the day, even if it's not, you know, working four hours and drenching through, but even if it's only a good 45 minutes working to get better every day, you know, making sure they have, again, that self-drive. And I'm just curious, how do you replicate, you know, the environment to where you allow these, or where you can teach these players how important that drive is in practice? Like when I'm working with junior players? Oh, just in general, even with professionals, how do you, you know, maintain that competitive competitive atmosphere to where they want to, you know, they're still giving 100% every day? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the challenge of, um, I mean, of, of any job, uh, but specifically, I think what we do, because it can be so, it can be very monotonous. Um, well, I guess all jobs can, but um, I, I guess the, the, the most basic thing is is the communication between myself and the player and and the player knowing my expectations once, as soon as we enter into the coach-player relationship, like we're going to have a talk and I'm going to convey to them my expectations for how we're going to go about what we do. And then, and I want to know their expectations of me. Um, you know, for what they what they want out of the coach, like how I can help, and I'm you know going to tell them you know the things that I value, the things that I expect, so that there's no confusion. Um, and then you know, and then the other part of it, you know, is keeping a finger on their pulse, like day in day out, understanding how they're feeling, understanding how they're recovering, understanding what's going on in their lives, so that I know if there's something on the court that I don't like. Is it related to something outside the fences? You know, is it something that I need to be aware of that's affecting their performance? Or is it strictly, you know, the tennis that day? Because if it's a tennis that day, I know I can push them and I can push them through that. If it's something going on, if it's, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend or family stuff or, you know, or school, if it's a younger player, is there something going on at school or issues with the parents or whatever it is? Like, I need to know that because then I can sort of help them through it. Well, A, I can sort of adjust my expectations for that day. And then B, we can try to find a way around it. Or I'll know that, you know, okay, I need to cut them a little slack today, not too much, but a little bit, and figure out, you know, figure out a different route. You know, how am I going to get A to B today? I might need to figure out a different route. Um, but either way, I'm going to try I'm going to try to get there, but it's going to take some, you know, uh, maybe some mental gymnastics on my part to get there or some a little bit of manipulation on my part for us to get there. But either way, we're going to be productive. Um, and... I guess what makes it easier for me too is that the players that I work with, um, like they want to get better. So their dips in any like motivation or whatever it is are going to be a little bit less than, than, you know, the average, maybe the average teaching proceeds. Um, but still they're They're going to be there. And so, like I said, it's understanding to the difference, like, okay, you know, today's one of those days, let's shut it down and let's come back, you know, tomorrow or today's the kind of day where I'm really going to push you through this. Um, and I had a day like that, maybe, uh, I can't remember, maybe last week, um, you know, we were practicing and 
it was a tough day. It was the end of a long week. The volume was pretty high and, and, and Shelby was a little bit tired. Um, but you know, she, I, I kind of, you know, I knew what to expect that day. I knew she was going to be tired and the volume had been high. And, you know, I knew that it was the day where I could push her because she wants to be pushed ultimately. And so, you know, I pushed her through. If, you know, it had been another type of day or maybe another player, we might have like cut it short and, you know, say, listen, we're going to go hard for 25 minutes and we're going to do this. You know, we're going to do A and B. That's it today. And we would have made the most of it. But again, it's kind of knowing who you're dealing with, knowing what's going on. Um, and if you're a little bit ahead of the game, knowing what to expect, I think it helps you be prepared for what you need to do that day to get the most. No, out abs- of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and one little caveat here. I know we're kind of in the transition phase, uh, but while we're still on the college space, I have to kind of uh, <laughs> take a little aside here. Uh, so I promise, I, I promise this will loop back to uh, something relevant, but ain't no party like a thug life party because a thug life party don't <laughs> stop. Coach Lucero, can you give us a little insight into your honors seminar class at BC? <laughs> Yeah, so um, I took this, this so, so at, at Boston College um, in the honors program, like your freshman, sophomore year, you take this class called Western Cultural Traditions. It's a um, it's a four semester class, so you take it your basically a full year, your freshman, sophomore year. Um, it counts it counts as basically two courses. It's a two hour class, so it counts as uh, it's six units um, per semester. So. It, over those first two years, it covers, I think, covers your English requirement. It covers your theology requirement. I think it covers your philosophy requirement and one more. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But anyway, it, it covers you for basically four year-long courses. Um, and so it's, it's a mix of all those things. You read the classics, you know, you know, Homer, Virgil, um, you know, all the way through, you know, through Beowulf and all, all these things. And yeah, at some point, my, my sophomore year, I wrote a paper about Tupac um, for that class. And I can't, I can't remember what it was about. I actually wanted to look it up last night through my old, through my old uh, papers. It's in a box in my room somewhere. But um, it was a paper <laughs> that I really enjoyed writing. And my teacher gave me a very good grade on it. And I was really shocked at how open-minded she was. Professor Mahalchik, love her. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they were very, you know, this was a liberal arts course. And they really were into us sort of exploring you know, I, I can't remember what the specific prompt for the paper was, but, um, you know, I, I am a big fan of, of Tupac and his work. And if you can separate the personality from the actual work, um, it, Absolutely. you know, he was, uh, he was, the, he was the poet of my generation. Um, uh, maybe oh. Ken, maybe the, the Kendrick Lamar of my era. Oh my gosh. How for old sure. are you? Jeez. No, I'm just kidding. No, I yeah. So sorry for the tangent, coach. I just I really enjoyed that tweet, and I'm a big Tupac fan myself. So I had to had to loop that in somehow, somewhere. Absolutely, I love it. Trying to link it back to tennis, I guess. You know, again, leaning on the experience you had at BC when you're giving advice to junior players. If if a I guess it, it's it's a complicated question because a lot of players have different things they want to get out of tennis, but in general. To, would you say it's a fair thing to say 99% of you know high-level junior players should play college tennis and only the 1% should go pro right away? Or do you think it really is a case-by-case basis? Well, I think this is the way I tell people. I say, I say if you even have to think about it, you need to go to college. If it's, oh, if it's even a great answer, in your mind, you need great to go to answer. college. Um, that's what, that's what I think. I mean, for me, your results dictate 
the level that you play at, they, they, your results dictate your schedule. And like I said, if you have to think about it, you should go to college. Um, I mean, for the men, if you're not winning challengers, if you're not going deep and winning challengers and competing for challenger titles, like you need to go to college. Um, so yeah, like I don't think there's, I don't think there's going to be anybody either that is hurt by going to college, you know, for a year or two or whatever it is. Um, and then you can really get an idea. Um, but you know, this, this idea that, man, gosh, it's a really tough decision. Like if it's a really tough decision, then you should probably go to school. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's. I think the decision's made for you. Yeah, I think that's completely fair, and I think people are spoiled right now because we've seen a generation of Tiafo, Fritz, now Michael Moe, all in the top 100. Jared Donaldson as well, and then you know you've got the Tommy Pauls, the Riley Opelkas, Stefan Kozlov's right beneath them, who are also making their strides on tour. That generation had so much unique success that. You know, you see now the Brooksby's and the Danny Thomases, and it's it's just a tougher decision for them because they've seen the recent successes. I, I guess I would agree with your sentiment a hundred percent. I just I think the college environment, the team atmosphere, getting able to play you know tennis in its most enjoyable form, is the thing I would inc- you know I just enjoy most about college tennis. I think that's an experience you wouldn't want to pass up. But okay, that, uh, people aren't here to listen about my thoughts. They want to hear what you're to say. What well, you're here I, to I say? Have, I have one. I have one. Yeah, following up on what you said, um, I was just, God, this was a couple of years ago when when Stanford hosted the NCAA's a few years back. I went up there. Um, I was I was working for the USDA still at the time. But anyway, Stanford was playing. The Stanford men, I think, were playing the University of Virginia, and Alex Clayton was playing. It was his last senior match, and he was playing at home, and he ended up losing this match. But like the crowd was going nuts. They were like against Sanam Singh, the UVA match. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I've yeah. seen the YouTube yeah. highlights. Yeah. So anyway, after this match, I ran to. It was just an incredible match, you know. And he lost, and I felt really bad, you know, his last, you know, his last college match, especially played at home. But anyway, after the match, I ran to Peter Smith from, you know, from USC. And he was like, he's like, man, he's like, this guy could go on to have a great pro career, but he's never going to play in an environment again like this, where the crowd's chanting his name, where there's that much passion. Like, and, and I thought about it. For, I'm like, I thought about it for a second. I'm like, you know, I thought that was like, uh, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, not the most realistic thing to think. But then once I thought about that, I'm like, Peter's absolutely right. I'm like it doesn't get any better than this. Like, you know, out there with your buddies and your best friends in the world and the crowds, like, you know, when was the last time we saw a player play a match and any, even, in, you know, any grand slam with a crowd chanting his name, like it doesn't happen really. Um, so I, I just, I thought, you know, for me, that's one of the matches. It's one of the best matches maybe I've ever, uh, it's one of the most memorable matches that I've ever been at um, as far as college goes and in pro tennis also, but, um, that match always kind of sticks out to me as sort of the epitome of the college experience. Well, you talk about replicating that atmosphere. I, I happened to be fortunate enough to go this past weekend to the Laver Cup, and I, again, I called you a tennis Twitter personality because that's one of the big topics on tennis Twitter right now is the Laver Cup. Is it a real event? Is it a, recre- or a an amateur, or a recreational event that doesn't really count? Um, how do we replicate that environment? Because as we saw through the crowds, you know, the first day had, I think, 16,000, but then it was 19,000 the rest of the way. These players seem engaged in a way that they just aren't normally when it's in. Yeah, and so I guess my question to you, and this is something we've been kicking around, I know world team tennis exists. I know there, you know, Davis Cup is its own thing, but 
Do you think the sport of tennis needs to find a way to incorporate team events and make that a larger part of the season? Yes. I mean, tennis is like what people, I guess, kind of gloss over, but they know intuitively is like tennis is so tennis is personality and star driven. Uh, And, you know, finding a way to put the stars in front of people, finding a way to create more stars. I think those are the big things for the game. And, People like team events. People like seeing the best players in one place. People like knowing who they're going to see, you know, you know, tonight, tomorrow night, the next night. People like to know who they're going to see, not like, okay, we need to see who wins and then hope to, you know, the schedule comes out tomorrow night and then we can know who's going to play on Sunday or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just really tough to plan that way. Like, say, hey, I want to buy tickets. You know, people ask me all the time, like, they don't know tennis. Hey, I want to buy tickets for the US Open. What night should I get? I'm like, I'm like I don't know. Like, we really want to see Serena. When should we go? <laughs> like, I don't know. We gotta, we gotta cross our fingers and put the schedule down. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. But the Labor Cup is just such a cool idea. I mean, last year, you know, uh, the U.S. was in the Fed Cup final. Like, for me, it, it was maybe, maybe the highlight of my career was being there and being, you know, a part of it. And I don't think, I don't know if there's anything that can come close to it, to be honest. Like, you know, no matter who I coach for the rest of my career, like, maybe even winning, I don't know, winning a Grand Slam, I have no idea. But like, <laughs> I, I don't know if there's anything that can that can touch like what that feeling was like because it was a team thing and because it was a United States thing. You know what I mean? Um, well, I, I'm curious because I read an interview where you mentioned you got to sit at the center court of Wimbledon with Shelby, and that was an experience of yourself. I wouldn't ask you. Yeah, I'm sure it's apples and oranges, but if you're comparing the two, which to you was the better fan experience? Uh, well, the the better the better fan experience. I'm not sure. The better like experience like the the moved me to tears was fed cup um <laughs> okay yeah i swear i mean i was like and, and again you know they're playing belarus you know ten thousand fans in belarus and Minsk, like shelby and coco uh winning the match to clinch the tie like i mean yeah like i was moved to tears after and i don't you know i don't know if there's anything that would you know make that happen again like i don't you know it, just the way that i felt that day um the, you know, the pride that I felt, you know, the happiness I felt for, you know, for her to, you know, accomplish something like this, you know, to do it as part of a team, to do it, you know, to see the, you know, the flag flying in the stands, the Star Spangled Banner when they're getting their trophies, um, you know, it was just, it was so special. Like the, the team pulling for each other, um, it was so neat. Like, yeah, Center Court Wimbledon absolutely was so, was so cool. Like Allison played Maria Sharapova that day. Um, it was like walking into this like cathedral where there's like, you know, you walk in and there's sort of this like angels, like, you know, chorus, like as you walk in and see like the, you, know, you bow to the queen. See, yeah. You see the Royal box to your left and Oh, there's David Beckham. Oh, there's Bradley Cooper, you know? And then, you know, the, to the right, there's Maria's team. There's, you know, I can't, I can't remember who she was with at the time. Maybe there's Sven Grunfeld or whatever. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, like it was just, it was a cool, it was a super cool thing. And, you know, even, you know, Allison played great that day. Even if she had won the match, like, it would have been great, but it would have been on to the next one. You know what I mean? Um, no, just seeing a match inside Central Court is super cool. And, like, it, it's, it's the only court in the world where the week before the tournament, I'll walk into the empty court and I'll sit there for, like, 15 minutes and just sort of, like, look around <laughs> and take that one. Yeah, uh, sorry, I, do, I do it every year. Like, during the practice week, like, you know, take my way in the stadium, go sit in the second row, like, look at the grass, look around, and smell it like look you know look at where i was sitting look at where the box is like it's just it's cool um but you know team events you know especially team events for a country like there's really nothing better 
Yeah, uh, but I even think it, it transcends country. I mean, sure, they played Team World versus Team Europe um, at the Labor Cup, but I, there's just something about the team aspect of the sport because it's so rare. There's something about these guys getting to play a match not only for themselves, uh, just for a larger team, uh, or just for a larger group in general. And I, I'm curious, here's one of my funky ideas to incorporate team tennis. We scrap the year-end finals for the men's and women's we make that a team event, and we just break up the teams. You have four guys and four girls on each team. You play, you know, everyone's got to play once per match. You play a set of guys and girls, singles and doubles, and then a mixed doubles set. You know, you do the game scoring like the world team tennis. I just think incorporating the team aspect, I, I, you could tell the crowd was into it in a way I hadn't seen before. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, like, if they could uh... – if they could scrap the Asia part of the year and put world team tennis in that part of the year and then incorporate a few more big cities and obviously, you know, get more top players, I think it would do great. Cause there's so much buildup after the U S open. There's so much excitement every year. Um, and then all of a sudden like tennis goes off the radar cause the matches are being played in Asia in the middle of the night, like for us, you know what I mean? And, uh, <laughs> and they're like, Oh, wait, what's the next big tournament? Oh gee, like Tokyo, Beijing, Shanghai. Well, which one's big? I don't know. They're all kind of big. And then, well, what are they doing? And then they're going to Vienna and then the men are playing in Paris. Like, well, geez, like, you know, how long do they keep playing for? You know, and then, oh, there's tour finals in London. Then there's Davis cup, which is the first week of December. And then there's, you know, okay, there's three weeks better get ready to go to Brisbane. You know? Um, yeah. It's tough to have that natural break. And, and, and world team tennis, I think is actually, I think it's a really good idea. I think it's a great fan product. Um, I think they need more top players and they need more cities, uh, more communities that are going to support it. And it's just a really, again, tough time of the year to get players to play. Um, but if it, was, if it was in the fall, if it was post US Open and you had, you know, you had a Chicago team, you had an LA team, you had a San Francisco team, you had a New York team, and you have top players that are going to play, I think people are going to take note because once they actually go to matches, it's a great product. Well, I just want to say the other aspect I find interesting with the or with the Labor Cup, it's not only the team format, but it's the shortened scoring, and that's another Twitter topic. Is especially you know for the men's Grand Slam, two out of three sets versus three out of five. You know, for me, even more interesting was seeing that third set become a tiebreaker. And you know, we could talk about the attention span of, of fans and why they will or won't watch a match for you know two hours or if not five and a half hours. You know, however long it is they want to tune into tennis. But I just think the abridged scoring format is going to be part two of whatever reforms come to tennis. I just think it's inevitable. The shorter format, the more more variety you see in results, you know, whether it's no ad scoring, whether it even is third set breakers, which were thrilling. I mean, they were thrilling. Like, you just don't see it like that that often, where Isner's got match points in both of his matches. Schwartzman's got match points. Everyone's got match points. And I, I'm just curious, are, as a coach, you know, someone who has seen you, you know, you coach the product of the game. You coach your players to be in shape so that they can play the eight deuce games. What are your thoughts on scoring reforms moving forward? I mean, is it my favorite thing in the world? Not really, but I think it's inevitable that we're going to get to it at some point. Um, you know, it's just going to be it's going to be a matter of playing the big points. Like how how well are you going to play the big points? And the players are going to do what they're. I mean, they're going to do what they're told. They're going to play the format that they're told to play. Um, I like the, you know, I even like the fast four that they play in Australia. Um, sometimes, like in that, you know, yeah, that I, exhibition it's, they do there. it's fun. It's fun. It's great for the fans. I mean, you know, it creates like this element of, uh, you know, of, of surprise. Like, you know, obviously, the longer the longer any any scoring format is, the more likely like the, the better player is going to win. The shorter it is, like the more things that can happen. And then, and you know, 
turn, is it good for tournament directors? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Like if you lose your star early because you know they lost in the third set breaker, like that kind of sucks. But yeah. you know, people like to see upsets. And again, maybe it's a way to create more, you know, more personalities, more stars. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't want to get you in trouble. I think appearance fee culture at tournaments is one of like the unsung dark stories of the tour. We don't talk about how much these tournaments have to dish out just to get these players to go there. And then that's, you know, you don't, don't want those players they're, they're to against, They're against the rules for the WTA. Yeah. FYI. Oh, no, I appreciate it. For the ATP, at least, in general. It, it needs to be uniform. It's ridiculous. The whole thing is ridiculous. I mean, I, mean, I would so, like, so I, I guess we like could agree that had a round robin format. Ooh, I'm I'm always in on changing up form. I I just the the monot- oh, So I guess this is, gets back to the slam debate. But for the men, let's have the first week beat two out of three, and then once we've weeded out the field, we're at the quarterfinals. We want the best player to emerge. We have that be three out of five. I just think. The inevitability in three out of five sets of the better player winning, as so often happens, I don't need to watch it over five hours. Maybe I just have Isner-Anderson fatigue because we've seen them battle so much recently. But still, I just there's something to shortening the format. Again, the element of the upset, which has been missing throughout the Big Four era, at least on the men's side, and just throughout Serena's reign on top as well of the WTA. Yeah, but there are like four the silos. The there's no set. way that all four... Uh, slams are going to get on the same page anytime soon. Says you. But Wimbledon's going to dig its heels in. You know that. It's part of that Royal Box experience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Coming well, from they, the I mean, they, they've, come out, they've come out pretty strong against coaching, you know, which the uh, you know the U.S. Open and the Australian have abused. I, I can't remember if they had the French or not. I, know, I wasn't there this year, but um, I mean, I think coaching is going to, you know, be legal down the line. Like, I think I think the game's changing, and we need to be prepared for it. Is that, like, in the foreseeable future? You say down the line. Is that, like, you know, Australia? Is that a year from now? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's that. I don't know if it's that quickly, but I know that, I know that WTA wants there to be more coaching um, or wants it to be legal. Uh, there's obviously some pushback. And, I mean, the U.S. Open's been trying to, you know, they've been trying to sort of implement it in qualifying. Um, the Australian had it in qualifying. So I, I mean, after this sort of, you know, debacle this year, I think they're going to, I think there's going to be a continued push to implement it in the game. And, you know, there's a lot of pushback for, you know, you'll have these like kind of uh, like a lot of guys who play the futures are like, Oh, it's, you know, so unfair, blah, blah, blah. Um, because, you know, certain players can afford it, certain players can't, which is a valid point too. But um, if we're talking strictly at the tour level, um, you know, uh, all these players, even the players who don't travel with a coach week to week, they all bring coaches to the Grand Slams. Um, so I think it's something, I think it's something that's coming. I don't think it's the thing at a Grand Slam that's going to exclude certain people. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I think it's the, the coaching in the game is just kind of a, you know, it's sort of an ugly part to it that can be quickly sort of figured out. You know what I mean? I, I think that's fair, and I will say Dalton asked a question I was going to ask you in terms of coaching in the future, so now I'm going to slide in a fun one since we have you know, the opportunity. Um, you, you look at just the game of tennis in general, and I think, well, I don't know how fun this question is going to end up being, but it, it you know, this reputation we get, whenever tennis is in the news, it always seems to be about something bad that's happened, whether it's the Serena incident or you have Kyrgios blowing up at a line judge or just any of those things. And I think those of us in the tennis Twitter community have really, 
you know, learn to enjoy the unintentional comedy of the match when tweeners go wrong or when a guy smack, you know, when the, the instance, when Marcos Baghdadis is smacking his rackets to the crowd's delight and he just keeps breaking them. And I'm just curious, you've been in the game at, at so many levels. How do you think we go about advertising the sport to, you know, highlight its best features more so than the scandals we seem to be seeing? That's funny because I feel like I've written to like a ton of reporters and wrote this exact same thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know if I've I don't know if I've ever tweeted it because I feel like I have maybe to Ben Rothenberg and then maybe I raised it. But, Can um, I just say it's because I've been reading your Twitter all day that I came up with that question. I actually have <laughs> to think. Really? Okay, good. Okay, I knew I knew I had written to somebody, but anyway, <laughs> I actually there there was a there was a guy who wrote an article for the San Diego Union Tribune maybe a month ago, and. Um, was it you intervened? Anyway, there was a reporter I communicated with recently, and I actually thanked him because I'm like, you know what? So many people write about what's going wrong in our sport, and this was one of the articles that I've read that talks about highlights something good, and I just want to thank you. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I think so many people just write about these, you know, they write about this drama or this scandal, this, and you know, or this issue with tennis, that, and um, it doesn't help. You know what I mean? I think we're all sort of, you know, stewards of the game in one way or another, even media. Um, because without, if the game is not healthy, like none of us have jobs, which you know <laughs> is the reality. Of it. Um, but so anyway, I, so going back to your question, you asked, um, how do we how highlight the good? Is that what you said? I can't even remember. I get I got my soapbox. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. It's yeah. How do we highlight the good? How do we you know get ignore the bad and just focus on the things we are doing well? Things like the Labor Cup or just. The fact that Djokovic comes back from injury. There, there are so many storylines. The fact that we have a young champion in Osaka, Ostapenko, all of these young champions. I think it's. I mean, I think it's. I think it starts grassroots with guys like you know, with guys like you. I mean, um, Aww, I'm I, I, You know, I, well, I, 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 I was gonna, I was gonna follow it up with like, you know, I hope you guys, I hope your site continues to grow to the point where it's no longer a grassroots. You know what I mean? Um, where oh. it's like you're a major player, sure. um, but. I think also um, I was actually reading an article about the NBA today and they were talking about like, why is the NBA so popular on social media? And it's because they're like David Stern and, and Adam Silver made a conscious decision to let people put up videos, let people put up gifs and memes using game footage. And they're not like going after people for using copyrighted footage. You know what I mean? Um, the fact that double fault, the account double fault when he was banned like that, that account is what tennis Twitter could be just because he cuts out all of the best clips of individual points of match. I completely agree with you. Sorry to cut you off. I just think no, that's I mean, exactly right. The, the NFL does the opposite, and like their ratings versus the NBA ratings on social media are like a huge difference. And I know tennis is the same way. Like you know, like, yeah, I know they were going after people for using you know match footage. Like there was a you know the WTA reactions was a great Twitter follow for a while. Um, mm-hmm. But um, you know, I, I just I think it takes. You know, I think a new sort of generation of media, like if there were a bunch of people like you guys, there are, you know, maybe hundreds of people like you guys, I think the game would be in a different place. But, you know, instead you have, you know, a handful of kind of reporters who are, you know, maybe a little bit older and maybe see it through a different lens. And, um, you know, obviously some people are out there trying to make names for themselves. And yeah, like, you know, is there a role for media? Absolutely. Like, you know, do they help sort of, you know, are they the, like, you know, the, the fourth estate is important, obviously, in any functioning democracy, and sports are no different. So, yeah, they need to do investigative work. But I, I think it gets old when it's the same old stuff every time, when it's always negative. Like, 
because we need a healthy game in order to survive. And that's my short answer. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, just because we know your time um, is precious and we want to be I have all the time in the world for you guys. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Appreciate that. But I, ultimately, we want to get to first break and ramp tennis yeah. and everything you're doing out west. But um, I do want to get on this burrito critic situation because I'm oh, a, a massive you beat me to it. guy myself. Yeah. So just maybe um, what are your top like two or three burrito places? And they don't have to be necessarily chains or otherwise. Just yeah. Top but three. Chipotle should be number oh. one. <laughs> this question is, is not for you, Gruskin. <laughs> oh, my God. Chipotle. Get out of here. So. I, I try to find a Mexican place in every city we go on tour, to be honest. I try. Um, I don't always succeed, but I try. Um, in, in Cal, in, in, I mean, in San Diego, like, you know, my favorite burritos, like, um, Santana's, which is where I, you know, grew up going when I was in high school. There's another place called Taco Surf by the beach, which I love. Um, in LA, there's a place called Brothers Burritos, which is here in Hermosa Beach, which I really like. Um, I'm trying to think where else. There's, I, I, there's a good burrito place in Strasbourg, France, which I really like. I know it's by the river. I don't know its name. <laughs> um, but uh, I try to find somewhere in every, in every city, to be honest. And I, I like a good warm tortilla. I think that's important. Beans and rice, <laughs> proper. Pinto beans, Spanish rice, not white rice, not brown rice. I want to like orange. Like and not dog. black beans. Black beans are garbage. Right, not not black beans. I want the legit experience, you know. A pinto beans, maybe cooked with lard. Who knows? <laughs> I want a good legume. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, I mean, actually, I mean, breakfast burritos are my favorite. Like when it comes down to it, but uh, oh, not nice. always not always the healthiest. But yeah, I'm a, <laughs> you know, I call myself a burrito connoisseur. <laughs> Self-proclaimed. Yeah, I love it. I, I love give, it. Yeah, I give good. Uh, I give good burrito ratings. Wait, so what's the beef with Chipotle? Just curious. I mean, Chipotle is, you know, is, was, you know, owned by McDonald's. Like, it's a mass, <laughs> uh, it's a mass franchise. Like, I don't, you know, it's like uh, saying, I don't know. It's, it's like, hey, like, hey, tell me where the best steaks are in town. And you're like, yeah, go to the Outback. You know, it's like that. <laughs> I will not. I was gonna say I will not allow you to slander the sponsors of the Bloomin' Onion on this podcast. So please, <laughs> yeah. have great bread. Like I don't mind going to the outback. <laughs> you're like, hey, you know, next time you're in New York, you want a really good steak? Go to the outback. <laughs> That's actually their new. Yeah, their newest commercial is Outback Great Bread. So thank you for writing that one. Yeah, I love it. But yeah, but we we do want to give you a chance to talk about First Break Academy before we get into our final segment, the Rapid Fire. So just yeah, what, what's going on out there? What are you guys up to? Yeah, so man, First Break. Um, it's been really exciting lately. We've uh, so how, how it started was a few years a few years back. There were a group of us here out in LA, like specifically like Manhattan Beach. Um, Myself, a guy named Rick Bukta, um, who is very involved with the game and the kind of a variety of levels. A woman named Peggy Bott. They went to college together. Peggy has two two uh, two kids who played high level junior tennis and collegiate tennis. Um, and then a couple of their coaches uh, who had worked with me at the USTA. And we wanted to start a program in the community in Carson, um, which is where the Stub Hub Center is, home of the USTA Training Center West. And, you know, we were all kind of at the point where we were like, man, this, you know, tennis has given us so much. Like, can we do something to be impactful in the community? And how can we, how can we, you know, provide this experience to other people? Um, so 
we decided to start a nonprofit program. And our biggest thing was like, man, can we provide a really fun tennis experience to some young kids and, and try to remove cost as a barrier to entry? Um, can we do this with really good coaching? And let's give them a chance. Like if they want to try to be players, let's try to do that. If they want to play high school tennis, that'd be great. And if some kids can eventually go to college, that's going to change their lives. You know, this is a very, uh, you know, as far as like the socioeconomics of the Carson area, like, um, you know, there's not a lot of money there. Um, there's, you know, a lot of like single parent households and, you know, there's households that have, you know, the same issues that, you know, the families across America have. So it's very representative of society, but it's, it's a place where, it's a place where kids, you know, aren't exposed to tennis. You know, they're exposed to like football and basketball and other sports that are, you know, that are, that are cheaper and um, easier access. And so we wanted to try to change that. So we've been able to do something really cool in Carson at the Sub Hub Center. And um, we have some really good young coaches that are there working with the kids day in, day out. Um, you know, we have a program that's basically sort of a combination of uh, like a high performance where we have kids who are, you know, who have the means are, are paying. And then we have kids from the, you know, from the community who, you know, who need some um, supplementation, who we're subsidizing. And they're out there, they're playing together, they're getting better together, they're playing junior team tennis together. We uh, we had a team that came in third, they won their region, they came in third in the section, which was really awesome. And I think a 12 and under beginner flight, like last season, which was awesome. We had another team that did really well in the 10s. Um, so it's been really cool to see these kids go from like never having played before to putting rackets in their hands and then getting them out there and now they're competing and we're going to, we want to do some work with UTR. We want to get them going with their, with their tennis rank, you know, tennis rating. Um, some of them, you know, are, are they playing tournaments now? They're playing sanctioned events, which, you know, we're helping with the entry fees for the ones that need it. And it's been great. We've had a lot of momentum and we're so lucky because, you know, our relationships with the pro players in town, like they, the players have been so great. Like anytime we ask, you know, the players are out there, whether it's Shelby, whether it's Stevie Johnson, you know, Taylor Fritz, Brad Klon, Sam Query, these guys are always saying yes, which speaks so much to their character. Again, this is one of the things that's not highlighted as much, um, but I wish I could like, I, you know, give me a reporter and I'm going to tell them so many good things about what these people do for us and never ask for anything in return. You know what I mean? Um, it's so awesome. Um, Pam Shriver is very involved. Tracy Austin's involved. She comes out to our events. Um, I got a couple NDA buddies of mine who are involved, Jason Collins and Troy Murphy. These guys love tennis. They're always coming out playing with the kids when awesome. we have events. Um, yeah, it's super cool. And one of the things that Pam, you know, sort of spearheaded was, you know, this idea that great tennis players come from multi-sport backgrounds. And she was really adamant that we start a multi-sport program. Like, can we, can we hook some kids into tennis by not overwhelming them <laughs> with tennis, but by like, hey, you can come to the center for two hours. You're going to get coaching for 30 minutes in basketball, tennis, and soccer, and you're going to get some tutoring. And so we started this program, which has been unbelievable, and kids love it. And all of a sudden, they're like, man, we want to play more tennis. And then they jump in the regular tennis program after, you know, it's just, it's awesome. So we have, you know, if you come out any day, you'll see some kids in the basketball who, you know, working with a coach there who we hire. You'll see kids, you know, playing soccer. You'll see kids in the tennis. Um, and it's just, it creates a really fun atmosphere. And we're trying to continue building the funds so that we can, you know, have more kids in the program. Um, that's one of our challenges. You know, we have an event coming up this, uh, this winter in December. Um, but it's been really cool being in it from the ground floor and seeing it grow, seeing the kids grow, seeing the, you know, seeing the smiles, seeing the kids dance and run and laugh and jump. And, and remembering too that, man, this is a game and this is a game that's really fun. This is a game that has given me a lot. 
and uh, I think it's the same for all the pro players that come out. They they feel the same way, and it's just been really cool to be a part of. And I hope we can continue growing. I mean, the videos look awesome. You know, we have friend or member of the Crack Rackets team, Parson Namadi. I think he's been out there a couple of times, or at least it seems like he's been out there a couple of times. Who knows if he's he was actually, actually there? He's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, Parson's with out there it, for sure, yeah. It, it does look so fun, and we actually, my usual podcast host, Max Rothman, I think he lives in Encino. I don't know. L.A. is all one big thing, but we'll have to get him out there. Check it out. Absolutely. He's welcome anytime. Uh, I'll send you guys the information for our December event. We'd love to have him. Uh, you, if you need to work on something, work on his backhand, please, for all of our sakes. Guys, just... Oh my God! His and Dalton's. You want you want to do something for Cracked Rackets? You teach Dalton how to hit a backhand. I need a oh, complete reconstruction, coach. <laughs> I'm good at backhands. That's perfect. <laughs> I'm glad to hear. Well, then let's end with everyone's favorite segment. It's our rapid fire segment. Dalton and I are going to throw a bunch of you know easy one or two word answer questions to you. Uh, I won't lie. Some of them you may squeak out a third, and we won't hold that against you. So it's okay. Uh, but we'll just alternate back and forth, and whatever's you know top of your mind, let us know what you're thinking. Okay. I'm ready. Right. Favorite city in the world? Uh, Paris. Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? Neither. Did you say neither? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, yeah I, don't, I don't know anything about either one of them. That's because when the first Harry Potter book came out, yeah, first Harry Potter book came out as you were writing that paper for your uh, PhD class or whatever class it was. So I guess that makes sense. Uh, all right, then we'll, we'll do a tennis one. First male player to win a single slam: Zverev, Chorich, or Chung. Zverev. Um, you have a morning workout to yourself, uh, cardio. You put on one song. What is it? Uh, Zed, the middle. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> love that song. <laughs> oh. If we can get the rights for that, we'll try and, and, then, play and, then, this. and then Drake nonstop. Great nonstop uh, right after. Oh, yeah. That's, that's uh, a hype one. Uh, right I love it. All right. Here's a fun one. Chipotle or Qdoba? Oh, my God. Um, can I go? Uh, what's the other one? There's another Mexican like, chain that's in the. I think Poncheros, maybe. Mo's, yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, I like this. Um, if you were to take one stroke away from your tennis game, what would it be? Uh. If you were to take one stroke away from Shelby's game, what would... No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer that question. That was... Yes, um, all hers are good. Yeah. <laughs> Fair answer. Okay, okay well, well then, then... How about this? Tupac or Biggie? Stake your claim. Tupac. Tupac. No, Tupac. West Clear Coast. West I'm Coast. a Coast guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, best ping pong player out at uh, the USCA West Campus right now. Oh, gosh. Um, who would I see that's really good? I think Ernesto Escobedo is really good. Oh. Is it, are his strokes flat on the big block table, too? He, he hits the ball huge. You know you know who's really good? There's a guy that plays for USA Soccer, because USA Soccer is at the center also. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. They, have one, they have one guy on the team that's really freaking good. I don't know who it is, but I saw him play one time. I think he would beat all the tennis guys. No way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Marty, Fish, well, Marty Fish is really good too, but he's, but he's not around. I've heard that. Anymore. Yeah, but Marty Fish wears ankle socks, so it's disqualifying. It doesn't count. Um, but all right, I'm all, I'm all about the ankle socks. Uh, no, Ruben's uh, tweet about ankle socks. I've never forgotten, and uh, <laughs> will never forgive. 
Well, then my my final question for you, you mentioned your time at Carson. This is pre-Lake Nona days. Are you team Carson or team Boca Raton? Dude, I mean, is that even a question? <laughs> uh, team Carson, team West Coast through and through. All right. uh, then I'm going to amend... I'll amend my question. Team Carson staff plays Team Boca Raton staff in a Davis Cup style format. Who wins? In tennis? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, um, it depends what year. I mean, if it's current, we, we, there's not that many coaches in Carson. So I think it'd be a tough, uh, it'd be a tough ask. Um, they have, I mean, they have so many players over there, like so many guys who played in, in Carson. It's like, there's, there's, only a couple, there's only a couple players. I think it'd be a tough match. The excuses are starting. This is exactly what you said at the U.S. Army Invitational, and this is why BC coach was skeptical. <laughs> usually, uh, usually the challenge is like Carson versus you know Lake Nona or Carson versus Boca, and like basketball, like in the off season. That's oh, ooh, that's a good question. We like we that. have a we have a squad in Carson for who? Like Marty <laughs> can play, Sam can play, Stevie can play, I can play. Um, we have, we have a pretty good team. Uh, I, th- I know I'm forgetting somebody who can play. I mean, and in Florida, I don't, those guys can't ball except for Opelka. I was just say it's a stereotype, but who goes first, Opelka or Isner in the draft? Oh, uh, but John John's in Saddlebrook. He's not at one of the training centers. John's- yeah, he's soft. He, he's yeah. He's in Dallas now. You're right. He is in Dallas now, and yeah. He's there with Alex Kuznetsov, who I had beaten horse recently and destroyed him. <laughs> For some reason, Isner to me seems like a Channing Fry, like a stretch five, stretch mark five. Yeah. They're the same height. Channing has, Channing has a great podcast, by the way, not to promote a competitor. But... <laughs> a competitor is funny. He's so witty. He's actually like a super <laughs> so funny. Dude. I like him. Yeah, he's hilarious. He gives a lot of shout outs to the sponsors. You guys should start doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Well, we would, but we would. I was going to say, we would, but you sh out back in Chipotle, so we're sh luck. <laughs> so, Coach Lucero, the best part about a fresh can of tennis balls is. The best. Uh, I, I like the way the ball feels. I don't know. People like to smell it. I've never, I've never smelled the balls, but I like the way they feel and um, the way they look when the logo is like intact. That is a new answer. Are you, do you guys, do you guys smell when the can opens? I've never done that. I, I'm pretty sure my mom thought I was a cocaine addict. Little did she know it was just a, a ball of tennis ball hair. Just, like, oh. just kidding. I'm not a cocaine addict. That was it. Quack that out, Westoff. Coach Lucero, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. This was a blast. Uh, the last like five seconds were super awkward, Ruskin, but <laughs> <laughs> leave it in then. Leave it in. Uh, this was an absolute blast. Appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thank you guys for having me. I had so much fun, and uh, I can't wait to hear it when it's live. Oh, absolutely. And we we reserve the right to call you back on for more questioning, Coach. In in light of other investigations going on. <laughs> I, would lo- I-, I would love to submit the further inquiries. <laughs> I welcome it. I welcome it. Get <laughs> on that note. <laughs> uh, Alrighty, coach. We will talk to you soon. All right, guys. Thank you. Appreciate right. it. Take, Have a good take day. Take it easy. Can't find a stop now. I'm not a prince of anything. Go take on that kill. Anyone has been so powerful. They trip at you. I read your skin up. Everything is confusing. You will be good. You will be more, you will be good, but you will be more.